Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly to another Arabian night. Arabian nights, like Arabian days, more often than not. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners. For your reconsideration. I am your host, Stephen Buja, and joining me, as always, like he do, Mr. Matthew Marchetti. Hey, Matt, how's it going? I am going. Going well, very happy, very excited to talk this movie with you. Very excited to be alive. What a Whoa, time. What a time to be alive. great time. I am <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, it's good. You know, just being alive itself is a is a good, is a good thing, and yes, may, yes. the times will sort themselves out. Yes, as, so. as, as, they also, as they always do, as they always do. Um, this week's film is one uh, I have been di- I just could not wait for. I think a lot of the audience members out there uh, have been waiting for us to tackle. It is 1962's Lawrence of Arabia, uh, by my reckoning, one of the most critically lauded and uh, revered films of all time. Uh, it is directed by David Lean. It stars Peter O'Toole, Sir Alec Guinness, Omar Sharif, Anthony Quinn, Jack Hawkins, a bunch of other specifically only dudes, and uh, of course the deserts itself, which is as big a, as big a character as anyone else. Matt, what is your history with this film? So I think I don't know what we were talking about when we were talking about this, but I had mentioned that. Um, AFI's 100 Greatest Movies TV special. I think it was a couple weeks ago. I, I had seen it uh, years ago. And, of course, this was this featured heavily on mm-hmm. there. Um, and I had always... I knew of the movie just because music, the imagery, it's just very iconic. But I had never seen it. And I think um, a lot of it was just because it was I was young and it was older and it was very long. I knew it was one of the... It was like the two VHS case yeah. movies at the video store. Um, but, pr- again, like a lot of the films on that special uh, shortly after watching it, I was sort of enamored with some of the stuff I saw, particularly with this film. And I think I hunted it down in the local library and I watched it uh, on a lonesome Saturday like night by myself. <laughs> I, was like, I think friends were, yeah, a friends, were, friends were calling me and I was like, no, I got to finish this movie. I got to watch it. I was very excited. And uh, yeah, so I probably saw it when I was like 13 or 14. Oh, okay. Jeez. How time flies. Indeed it does. Indeed it does. I had a similar experience. I think I might have been around the same age. I definitely feel like I was in high school. And I went to the local video store. Actually, one of two local video stores. It might have been Hollywood Video. And yes, I too rented the double VHS version of this movie. And I sat down and watched it. And I can't remember my reactions. But I do remember, like, I definitely saw it. And it was late. I think I, I I guess I enjoyed it. I'm not yeah. entirely sure, but I also remember thinking, you know, this would be way better on a movie theater on a movie screen. Just oh, yeah. th- the crappy transfer onto a VHS is perhaps the worst thing to do to a movie that is shot on 70 millimeters. <laughs> and uh, I love all of the kitschy, crappy films that came out on VHS. And I want them to uh, survive, but man, I am glad VHS as a medium is dead because um, it's 
it just it there's a how how a movie is presented is as important as what it is doing and vhs did not present movies particularly well (laughs) but i did have a very large collection of them stashed in a trunk somewhere that i think i either sold or i will assume my mom threw out she threw out a bunch (laughs) of my stuff and that's fine there was nothing important in there i think but we'll see um so yes that is our little intro into lawrence of arabia our own personal uh personal feelings about it we are going to take a short break you're going to listen to sam spiegel accept the best picture oscar like he does and when we come back we will discuss the 1962 academy awards in which lawrence of arabia won big ladies and gentlemen there is no magic formula for creating good pictures. They are made with assiduous, concerted hard work by everyone connected in the making of them. The writer, the director, the technicians, actors, thousands of employees of the picture during the making of it. In their behalf, in behalf of all of those who sweated months in the desert, To create this picture, I deeply, sincerely thank the voters of the Academy and proudly accept this honor in their behalf, proudly and humbly. Thank you very much. Lawrence of Arabia won seven Academy Awards the night of the 1962 Academy Awards. Obviously, one of them was Best Picture. Matt, what were some? What were the six others? It's a long list. Uh, um, all very well deserved, I would say. So you already mentioned Best Picture, Sam Spiegel, uh, Best Director from the aforementioned David Lean, uh, Best Cinematography in the Color category. Right, yeah, for Freddie Fred- Young. Freddie Young, who I would go, who I would say would go on to, I believe, do the cinematography for You Only Live Twice, one of the James Bond films. Okay. A couple years later, uh, as well as a fascinating British horror film called The Asphyx. It's literally called The (laughs) Asphyx. Just look. I've seen the movie three times, and I still don't quite know what The Asphyx is. I think it's some kind of ghost. Either way, it's a really interesting British horror film from the early 70s. Check it out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, Freddie Freddie Young, um, alongside uh, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, again, in, in the color format with three people, right? John Box, John Stahl, and Dario Simone. Um, I would say sometimes when you see uh, a lot of names uh, in production design, sometimes there's some issues involved, but I feel like you actually needed three people to do all this That's, in this movie. Yeah. There's yeah. so much going on. The f- one person would not have been able to do it or they would have lost his mind. <laughs> right. The fact that there was only one director, it's just kind of is incredible. Yeah. You're like, yeah. David Lean, you're a, you're a madman. I don't understand how you can wrangle this but sure <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah yeah that i don't know man he is yeah he's a nutcase he's a nutcase uh and then we had best sound john cox uh best film editing mm. uh and coats and then best best music score substantially original is what i say which which you know what <laughs> like that's I, I I like that because you know what last year Arrival had one of the best scores of the of the year of any movie, but 
but it was disqualified because it used uh, part of a Max Richter tune at the end. And I'm like, no, but all the rest of it is so original. Like, bring, like, you know, it doesn't have to be totally original. Just like, you know, mostly like 75% original, but you can use like a little, little piece here and there. Like, come on. Let's give us give us a give us a leg, right, Academy. Right. Please, please, please. I do like how uh, I do wish uh, I do like how everything was broken up into uh, color and black and white back in the day. Must have made the ceremony a bit yeah. longer. But also, it's in these days. It's interesting to note that we are all most predominantly color films <laughs> that uh, that that are released. So you know, we don't even have to worry about the black and white. Last black and white film to win was, of course, The Artist in 2011. Uh, the film was nominated for a total of 10 Academy Awards. It lost three, obviously. Which three were those? Uh, it was uh, both actor, best actor in a leading role, and best actor in a supporting role for Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif, respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I believe best writing, a screenplay based on material from another medium. Yes, based on the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, written by T.E. Lawrence himself. One of my favorite things about this is that it's the opening credits of the film say, "Introducing Peter O'Toole," <laughs> and he's one of those actors that fifty years since this movie, you go, "Oh, the." He's always been around. You right. you, and you would think like, oh, he does a few small roles. He did a few small roles. He had a couple of TV roles and small small roles in two other films. And they're like, yep, you, sir, are going to be in one of the most expensive movies of all time. You're just going to you're just going to be you're going to be the, not only the lead character, you're going to be the titular character. You're mm-hmm. you're Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, it was originally offered to Albert Finney mm-hmm. of all people. And then uh, I believe Marlon Brando also passed mm-hmm. on the role, instead choosing to do Mutiny on the Bounty, the yep. remake of a previous Best Picture winner that we discussed er- in an earlier episode. That I think that was a lot of a lot of fun as well. And uh, Best Supporting Actor Omar Sharif, one of um, the great titans of Middle Eastern cinema, the only Middle Eastern actor of any of in a significant part to appear in the film. Despite, of course, there being actual many Middle Eastern characters yep. with talking roles, but that is an issue to bring up during our main review segment. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a movie that, in some aspects, has not aged particularly well. <laughs> what was the competition that Lawrence of Arabia had to uh, roll through like a whirling dervish? Some some good ones, actually. One you you have already mentioned, the mutiny on the bounty. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which I, I feel like I've seen parts of it. I feel like, I think we talked about this when we talked think, about the, the other film. I think we did at the time we talked about uh, the original one. I did not know that this the its remake was nominated for Best Picture as well, and I think that means that Mutiny on the Bounty is the only movie, the only story to have won Best Picture and also have had its remake nominated for Best Picture, which hmm. is. Fascinating. It, it, is, would have been, yes. it, would, it would have been great if, they, if it had actually won, just as one of those weird quirks in um, uh, in, in history. In fact, yeah. in fact, I wonder if it was because it had won before. If they were like, "No, nah, it's not going to win," or if it's yeah, the fact that it. it's like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> what were the other three? <laughs> uh, we had the longest day, the uh, really fantastic uh, war film, mm-hmm. um, the Music Man. Oh, I love it. One of my favorite yeah. musicals, man. Yeah, it's. Good. I'm not a big musical guy, but that is actually one I enjoy very, very much. So I, I, I'll agree with you on there. And then, um, probably one of the most like 
affective films I've ever seen, at least when I was younger, when I had first seen it, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Um, I remember a teacher really, like desperately trying to get me to read that book, and I was like, I'm not reading. There's video games in this world. I'm not reading, sir. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. And then, like, we didn't, I didn't read the book at all. I was, like, failing the class, and we watched the movie at the end, and I watched it, and I was like, oh, my God. That was the book. Like I need to go, and then I read the book in like two days. Like I, I was so enamored with the film that I had to read the book afterwards. Yeah. So it's a really interesting thing that happened there. But I love that movie. Love, it's love a, it's a great movie. But now, you know, I really wanted to kill a mockingbird video game. It's like an intense courtroom drama. Shooting the dog in the streets. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 good. You know, it's a quick time event game where you have to like go through a, like a list of uh, you know quotes and responses <laughs> to things, and you have to try. But the but the funny part is you can never get uh, the guy off. He's always going to be found guilty. <laughs> it's it's guilty, yeah. but th- but that's not the point. It's the point is you're a good man and you try to stand up. Kill a mockingbird. Come on, Bethesda. Please get on that game. I want. Kids around the world who are forced to read the book, and you know they should read the book. But if they don't want to, they should absolutely play *To Kill a Mockingbird* the video game. Let's make that happen. <laughs> um, I do have to say that is a very tough list of competition. Um, yeah, it is. I, uh, honestly, with the exception of *Mutant, Mutant on the Bounty*, because I haven't seen it, the three other films are like those are really good movies. *The Longest Day* kind of feels like a, a, it's a Great recounting of D-Day, told from both sides. Um, it's utterly fantastic. Music Man, again, great. And To Kill a Mockingbird picked up uh, Best Actor for, of course, Gregory Peck. <laughs> but, uh, when my uh, wife and I were, were watching the this movie, we, you know, she asked, like, did did Peter O'Toole win Best Actor this year? I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't quite remember. Like, I know he was at least nominated. He had to be at least nominated. I'm like, who did, like, but... If he didn't, like, I don't think he ever won an Oscar, did he? And I'm like, well, who did he lose to? Who did he lose to? I'm like, oh, well, yeah, he lost to Atticus Finch. Like, right. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. that's that's like that's like all the guys who were who were up against uh, Daniel Day Lewis as Lincoln. You're like, um, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, <laughs> just, it's just the wrong year for for this. It's just, slap him, slap him. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um. Peter O'Toole holds the record for most nominations, I believe, at I believe six or seven, for an actor without a win at the Academy, a competitive win at the Academy Awards. He was later awarded a Lifetime Achievement for all of his many gifts to cinema. But um, yeah, he uh, like Hitchcock, he never walked away with uh, with the actual competitive prize. One of the sometimes, what, that's, sometimes that's better, I think. It. You know what I mean? It feels yeah. like a little. Not for him necessarily, but I feel like a lot of times these actors they they would like it, but it's sort of just like icing on the cake. I think sometimes it, it sort of alters your career sometimes in negative ways, and it, I feel like if particularly in Lawrence of Arabia, if he won, it, it might have changed his trajectory in a in a sort of negative way. Yeah, um, and if, you know, so, you know what I mean. It's he might have been, yeah, kind of thing, right? Yeah, he might have been the Timothy Hutton of the '60s. Yeah. Yes, yes, that is. <laughs> not where I was, not where my brain was, but I like it. <laughs> um, some people might remember the 1962 Academy Awards as a night of gossipy, catty drama. Uh, this was, I believe, one of the last chapters in the infamous Joan Crawford Betty Davis feud. Um, Craw- um, Betty Davis was nominated for uh, Best Actress, but Crawford 
who was not nominated, said, hey, any of you actresses who are not present, I will accept the award for you <laughs> should you win. And sure enough, Anne Bancroft was on Broadway the night of the awards and won for The Miracle Worker. And so Joan Crawford went up and accepted the award for Anne Bancroft. Betty Davis was livid, and the tabloids the next day did not care about Lawrence of Arabia winning. It was all about Betty and Joan. Uh, I don't know if they've gotten to that on the show. I have not seen the show. I hear good things. It's just that I got a Netflix queue that is a mile long that I need to get to, really. But that's a fun little that's a fun little thing. And finally, uh, this was David Lean's second and final Oscar. He would only get the two. He won. Uh, both were for directing. And the other one was obviously 1957's The Bridge on the River Kwai, one of uh, the other great war movies of all times. But nah, let's not say 1962 was a slouch. It may not be the best year for movies, but it did have some quality, quality entertainment coming out there. Uh, are there some that stood out to you as worthy? Yeah, yeah. one in particular. One of my, one of my favorite American films of all time um, I mean, you had mentioned before. I, well, hold on. Before I get to that, I, you mentioned Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and so whatever happened to Baby Jane was 1962. That was that was the film in question, mm-hmm. and I worship that film. I think it's just something. It's something so just twistedly special, and it's like amazing that it was made and nominated for awards because it's such a weird, disturbing film that I love. But one of my favorite films of all times is 1962's The Manchurian Candidate. I love that movie with a passion yes. so much. I don't know what it is about it. It's just so, I think I was just at this point in my life when I was super into films from the fifties and sixties and I wanted to just see everything. So when I saw something that was shocking and um, sort of different, it always just took me by surprise, particularly, you know, cause you look at an older film, you're always like, well, this won't surprise me. This won't be shocking or bloody or anything. And then you watch it and you're like, Shit. Yeah, it's a serious movie. Like this guy blew, blows his brains out in like 20 minutes in or a half hour into that movie, and I was just like, "Oh no, you're not <laughs> blood in old movies. What's happening?" <laughs> so yeah, I worship that film. I love it. I love I love everything about Manchurian Candidate. It's okay. a strange, fantastic movie. All right, that's that, my number one. Yeah, that that was on my list of what movie is Matt gonna say? It was, it was either that one or the all-time great Mystery Science Theater 3000 classic. The brain that wouldn't die. Yeah, the brain that wouldn't die did come out. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of really good, a lot of really good uh, sci-fi-ish type movies came out in 1960. <laughs> yeah. Actually, when I say good, I'm using. Good. Right. I, well, actually, one very good sci-fi film came out. Uh, that uh, it's a short film that I saw oh, years ago and was just always taken by, and that is the French movie La Jeté, uh The Pier, which yeah. was the inspiration for Twelve Monkeys which is one of my all-time favorite time travel movies. Uh, just just fantastic. But also in 1962, you have uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, excellent, excellent Western. The very first uh, James Bond movie, Dr. No. Lolita. Uh, I believe that was Kubrick, right? That was Kubrick? Yep. Yep. It's yep. it fantastic. The, or, the OG Cape Fear. <laughs> uh, still holds up, by the way. That movie does still it? holds up. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I show that in my film class, and kids still are pretty, like... He's out by Robert Mitchum, so not the best part. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as well you should be. Half man, half lizard, Robert Mitchum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, actually, uh, in addition to La Jeté, there were some great foreign movies. Yes. Um, actually, well, t- two, two of two of uh, um, particular note: Jules, uh, Jules and Jim. 
And, uh, oh, one of my favorite, Sanjuro. Yes. yes. Love me some. Love me some, uh, some, some Ronin Samurai stuff. Anything else of a uh, particular note for you? No, you mentioned the big ones. Uh, yeah, Jules and Jim is fantastic. Oh, Polanski's, I think Knife in the Water came out that year. Mm. Um, I, like, I like Polanski a lot. Another good Japanese film, Harry Curry, came out in 1962. Another good samurai film. Um, obviously, Mondo Kane, one of the weirdest, most disgusting films I've ever seen in my entire life. And King Kong versus Godzilla, where I believe King Kong shoves a tree down Godzilla's mouth at one point. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the greatest things to see in cinema history <laughs> like this little like ho scale tree just being shoved down this man in a suit it's like the best thing i've ever seen i'm gonna go look at a picture of it right now. okay well while you do that we're gonna take a short break and when we come back we are finally going to dive into the glorious damn near four hour feast that is lawrence of arabia anywhere within 300 miles of medina there are Hashemite Bedouins. They can cross 60 miles of desert in a day. Oh, thanks, Dryden. This is going to be fun. Lawrence, only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. It is recognized that you have a funny sense of fun. Matt, what is Lawrence of Arabia about, according to IMDb? Yes, so saith the great internet movie database. Uh, it actually is pretty succinct, actually. Uh, the story of T.E. Lawrence, the English officer who successfully united and led the diverse, often warring Arab tribes during World War One in order to fight the Turks. And so much more. And it's it's the more where the film really shines. But yeah, that yes. is actually a very succinct uh, summary of it. Uh, we have talked about historical accuracy in, in our films and have determined that who cares in that <laughs> they, these are movies, not documentaries. They are attempting to entertain and... Um, not recreate, provoke an emotion that may not necessarily be historically correct. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of folks take umbrage at the film. Certainly the estate of Lawrence himself, his, his family are like, he was not fucking crazy like this. He was actually a pretty chill guy, but <laughs> that's not the point of the movie. At three and a half hours, let us begin at the beginning. A very good place to start. You know what I miss in films? The opening overture. Four and a half minutes of just the theme song playing, waiting for people to get into their seats. They need to bring that so, back. I know it came back for The Hateful Eight, but oh, oh yeah. man, it's like a lost <laughs> art. It makes it feel like an event movie. And if nothing else, Lawrence of Arabia is an event. Need to yeah. be seen on the biggest goddamn screen possible. And also, for a lot of films, looking at you, Michael Bay's Transformers, intermission. Sometimes you need a break from all of that chaos. However, I digress. Uh, the beginning of the movie is actually the end of Lawrence's life. Matt, what do you think of us seeing Lawrence die in A, such an ignoble way, and B, at the beginning, <laughs> does it rob the movie of some of its dramatic tension? I, I think that it, it, it might. It didn't for me, I guess. And I'm trying to think back to original viewing as well, just because 
sort of virgin viewing it, so to speak. Um, I think I felt a little disappointed on first viewing. I feel like that's just what my go-to would have been to feel a little disappointed in, in seeing it that way. However, seeing it a second time, I feel like it actually connects really well with the sort of humanity of his character that, you know, people who have sort of these um, big and epic lives and do these big and epic things don't always have big and epic ends. They sort of can just be snuffed out in an unfortunate accident like anybody else. And I just, I feel like thinking back to the beginning at the end of the movie, seeing it this time, it actually felt very humanizing for his character to think that like, oh, like that's, that's the way he goes. He sort of goes out, you know, in his own terms, sort of being a daredevil asshole, which is sort of great and it fits his character perfectly. Um, but I, I found it very humanizing. It's, it's sort of like watching a disaster movie when you know what the disaster is. I think we talked about this a bit with Titanic, right? You kind of go in knowing what's going to happen, and it sort of makes it makes everything that comes before it a little more exciting, maybe, and it makes everything that comes before it a little more powerful because you sort of know that this man's life is finite. So you sort of maybe appreciate the things we do see more so. I don't know if that makes sense, but... <laughs> so the beginning of the film, which is the end of Lawrence's life, is an ordinary ending to an extraordinary life. And that's sort of like the central theme of the film. Lawrence wrestling mm -hmm. with this, this idea that he is an extraordinary man and letting it consume him while also wrestling with the notion that he's just another man in the British Army. But mostly what this is, at least for me, and I was watching this with my wife, and it's why riding a motorcycle is absolutely right. forbidden in my household. Because you can lead such an incredible life and you could potentially have so much more to give, but if you're going too fast on a bike and speaking of and thank god for <laughs> steady cam because whew, when you speed up footage on a non-steady cam camera it is rough man it is rough so basically it's don't ride bikes because you might die so you can't talk about lawrence of arabia without talking about lawrence himself peter o'toole striking choice for lawrence much taller than yeah. the actual Lawrence. His eyes are absurdly blue. No. His <laughs> no, hair is absurdly blonde. I have no idea how old he is. Uh, Lawrence is 27 in the film, and O'Toole, I have no idea. He could be 20, he could be 50, I don't know. He does look and talk like and moves like he is much older. Um, yeah. Matt, what do you think of his performance and how has it held up over the years after we've seen so many other actors play this sort of role? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think, again, having seen the movie once already, I went in you know, with some scrutiny just to sort of make sure that I was picking apart the things that should be picked apart. Um, and one of the big ones was his performance. I was just you know, wondering if, because he was nominated and didn't win, thinking about maybe what some of the reasons were. Um, I found him to be... I, I found his character and his character's arc to be the most interesting bit in the movie, really. I mean, I really enjoyed sort of following his character's psychology as it sort of mutates throughout the film. Um, I liked that I always enjoy characters that are sort of likable but unlikable at the same time in, in some regards. I'm always fascinated by these sort of, you know, liminal, flawed characters. They're the most interesting. You know, he's not like a full-on hero. He's certainly not a villain by any means. Um, he does things with good intentions, but they don't always work out, and he sort of isn't always the best sport about them not working out. Um, he's forced to do terrible things, 
but he sort of falls into things that are amazing. Um, so I, I think his performance runs the gamut of a lot of different emotions. I think in a movie this long with a lot of things going on, you know, you always run the risk of having like overblown performances, overblown everything. And I, I'm trying, I'm trying to rack my brain and, and think if there was a moment where I really felt like it was too much or not enough or something like that. But I, I, I just thought he was damn charming from, from the second he comes on. And I, I, what, what I, what I liked about it, I guess this is, this is it. What I liked about it is he sort of is portrayed as this sort of um, cliched, like movie serial hero at the very beginning. And by the end of the film, he's sort of anything but that, but also still that. And I think that that's awesome. Like he's recognizable. His character is recognizable, but he's also unrecognizable in a lot of ways by the time the film's uh, towards the end, the last like 45 minutes or hour or so. He goes through a lot of shit in this film. Uh, he it seems does. like a very unheroic character, actually. Um, his physical demeanor is different. Uh, yes, he commands the room, but not in the way we think of, say, Captain America or like any of the Marvel guys, you know, these very macho characters. He's very mm-hmm. f- effeminate. And that's one of the things I've yeah. learned is that it was rumored that Lawrence himself was gay, but since this is 1962, you can't actually portray that in yeah, a blockbuster it, it, Academy Award-winning film. Um, so what Lean and O'Toole do, I suspect, is just input all of these little subtle mm-hmm. things from his hair to his mannerisms, the way he talks he's got this very fey thing going on which i never picked up on before but years of experience yeah but it does add another layer to it because he's in this most masculine of things the british army in world war one and he always looks so uncomfortable in the uniform and it's when he gets the arab garb which you can say could be described as effeminate by uh, us westerners that is when he really <laughs> steps into his own skin at last. Hmm. A fascinating question. I think that he's one of those characters that sort of, or figures that sort of exists as a figure and not a man. Like it's sort of like a, there's like an idea about. Lawrence of Arabia, almost this sort of like, you know, um, messiah-like figure that's supposed to do all these things. There's even mention of, um, he, he sort of even compares himself a bit to Moses at one scene, during one scene. It's, I think it's after, it's when they take Aqaba, I believe, he, he, as he's leaving, I think. He's going to cross Sinai to get back to Egypt. Um, so I think he's this larger-than-life figure that sort of, we see a lot in history, but we never truly know kind of how they are, you know, how they were as people. And I think the movie tries to straddle the line between portraying him as a figure, a larger than life figure and portraying him as a human being. Um, and I think it, maybe this was in, in somebody's head, maybe in David Lean's head. I think he sort of has them sort of duke it out the, the you know, the, the T.E. Lawrence character and then the Lawrence of Arabia character kind of to see who will in the end win out. Um, and I don't really know who wins. I think I think Lawrence of Arabia, the figure, he, he, it sort of takes over him as the movie progresses, as he sort of becomes more overblown than he has any control over. Um, but I think the film would have you sort of believe that the T. Lawrence figure is is the one 
that we're sort of left with or what we want to be left with, right? When he's sort of humbled at the end. Um, I don't know if I'm just rambling. No, 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 you're right, you're right. He starts sense. off as T.E. Lawrence, quirky British officer, and ends as a rougher, much rougher version of himself. There's no more war to fight, and he's right. kind of, and he's lost. He's a man in love with his own myth. He does these things and starts to get so, it's like it's like a very yes. biblical story. Pride cometh before the fall. And it wrestles, the film wrestles with, these mm-hmm. notions of identity is mm-hmm. he british or is he as some of the generals say is he going native is he just a soldier or is he a quasi messianic yeah. figure who can unite the clans is he just an ordinary guy or is he something extraordinary and he thinks he's untouchable there's that scene before he enters the city of dura and he's espousing like give me 10 men and i'll take damascus like dude get off your high horse mm-hmm. and Sure enough, the film knocks him down in the next scene after he's captured. Uh, this is one of those scenes that uh, works, that benefits from years of experience of seeing things. When I was younger, I'm sure I was like, what a little bitch. You yep. got whipped, so what? You got you got shot before. What is a whipping compared to anything you've done so far? Like, you've killed a bunch of your friends yourself. Like, come on, what's left? Uh, until got to today and go oh oh no 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 oh no 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 because it's uh it's a heavily implied rape scene uh because man that whole interrogation scene it just felt it was like weirdly sexual and gross and it just like like get me get me out of there and uh and to to just get it by the censors in 1962 i i guess kudos to you david lean um but then to see him after that, to see this sort of demigod yeah. knocked down to below human status in the eyes of the Turks, like he just wants to leave, he had to get out. But, you know, Allenby talks him back into it and like, then, damn it, he don't give a fuck. He wants revenge and then he uh, massacres uh, that, that retreating is. Turkish brigade and later takes Damascus and uh, it's a fascinating yeah. portrayal yeah. and yeah. O'Toole to, to his credit he plays all of the emotions perfectly the rage the sorrow the sadness the horror uh, he has to go through so much and I think had it not been for Gregory Peck delivering one of the greatest male performances of all time like O'Toole definitely would have gotten that Oscar oh. um, so there was a little dust up recently about Dunkirk and Planet of the Apes not having any roles for women lines for women and i can only imagine what the think piece authors of today would say about this film because there are no women whatsoever in this and there are a bunch of dudes sir alec guinness omar sharif anthony quinn titans of the film community and they're all great in particular you have to give a shout out to omar sharif the sole middle eastern actor in a film that is set in the middle east um what to you yeah. makes him a great companion to Lawrence? So what I like about his character is sort of the juxtaposition between his character and, and, and um, Lawrence's character because they're sort of polar opposites. Um, I, I got this very warm vibe from um, Sharif's character, Sharif Ahali. Um, yeah, I, I just think that there's something really interesting about 
his character. In, in such a long movie, we have a, we have plenty of time to have not just Lawrence's arc, but but other characters' arcs as well. And I think seeing the sort of companionship between the two characters, um, between between Sheriff Ali and between Lawrence, is just one of the one of the kind of best things about the film. I think it's one of the most like charming aspects of the film. There's sort of friendship, there's sort of brotherhood that builds over the the three hours and forty some odd minutes. Um, and I think at the end, at the end of the film, um, Therese's character is the most sort of affecting for me in, in, in his final scenes, particularly. I just feel like you really want, you want to like give the guy a hug. He's sort of like, he's gone this far and he sort of realizes like, I can't go any farther. I can't go any farther with this guy. Like I've sort of gone as far as I can with my friends and, and I, I just can't, I have to sort of stop and it breaks his heart. And um, I think Sharif's portrayal is just is just fantastic. I mean, he's he's got a really magnetic sort of screen presence in general. Um, he plays sort of the cocky um, foreigner very well, and then Lean sort of subtly um, integrates him into Lawrence's life in a way that it sort of happens at the same time for the audience. Like you might not like him at first, and then as as Lawrence starts to like him more, so do you. And, and then they become really close friends and then and, and you sort of feel all their struggles and their backs and forths. And I just feel like with different casting, it would have been a disaster. If someone else was in there and that, that role didn't land, um, it would have been a disaster, I think. Because I think um, I think Ali's character sort of humanizes um, Lawrence's character in a lot of ways, which is a funny juxtaposition because, um, you know, the, the, the Bedouin people are sort of seen as these brutal... Um, psychopaths, and in reality, I feel like Lawrence is actually um, more unhinged in certain scenes than a lot of them are. So, uh, yeah. Ali definitely has the hard job of being the one who has to stay. Lawrence gets to go home to his green country, and Ali is the one who has to adapt to the situation. Lawrence is a warrior, and Ali is grateful for Lawrence's role yeah. in getting the Arab National Council in place, but ultimately he's not an Arab. Uh, he's not the one who can take it the next step it's up to ali to become the politician and after the revolution is over i mean you have to start ruling and that is a much different thing and it's one that lawrence is not suited for uh, the issue of racism and race does play a factor for lawrence who says that one's color determine right. determines what one wants and what i want i can't have I'm a white guy, and you're an abbot, and never the twain shall meet. Except, of right. course, in the role uh, roles of Prince Faisal and Auda, played by Sir Alec Guinness and Anthony Quinn, who you will note are most assuredly white dudes. Uh, we've all seen Star Wars. I mean, come on. It's uh, Alec Guinness, so pale. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, mm-hmm. brown face. It's the 1960s, so there is a forgiveness in the historical perspective, but oh, man. This is uh, it's a little problematic these days, but the the performances are both great. Um, I love Prince Faisal, and I really do love Anthony Quinn yes. in this as the as Auda, who's out for himself in his own tribe almost exclusively. Uh, he's more brutish and unthinking, and I I like I liked his character. But uh, it's uh, the brown face is still a very upsetting fact of the film, one that I think would prevent it from being shown in college classes. Um, if uh, if they ever do decide to remake this, and I yes. don't think they ever should, I can only imagine the outrage that would occur if they tried to pull half the shit they did in this movie. 
Okay, still so much to talk about. All actors aside, really one of the main characters in this film is the desert and the cinematography. 70 millimeter Panavision, uh, one of the first films to do that. Uh, I, I have to say, man, this is one of the most beautiful films of all time. I am so in awe of the look yes. of it because yeah. it's the movie that gives you... <laughs> at last a sense of scale with the camera um, a lot of the 70 millimeter things we've seen most recently dunkirk it's it's beautiful but it's always tight in on the action and even the hateful eight uh, which i mentioned before which is an okay movie but it just annoys me that they wasted 70 millimeters on what is essentially an interior set um, but from the wide expansive desert shots to the endlessly of actual people on horses because damn Freddie Young basically completes the old adage of every frame a painting. Uh, even on my silly, pathetic 30-inch TV, it was remarkable the use of framing on this film to make you feel the vastness, the heat. Um, one of the things I love about David Lean is that he makes you feel his films. You feel the heat in this, and you feel the location. He takes effort into giving you a sense of where you are, whether it's the cold steppes of Russia or the jungles of Asia. You feel all of it. And this one, uh, the story goes that people during uh, intermission who rushed out to the concession stand to get water because they were so thirsty from all of that heat and sun coming off the film. Um, so Matt, yeah. what's your take on the film and the look of it? And on what size screen did you see this movie on? So I, so the, the first time I saw it, it was probably on like a 28 inch TV, like tube TV. Um, this time it was on my, I think it's a 65 inch 4K. So um, I was suitably sucked into the film because you sort of can get lost on the edges of, of a larger size screen like that. Um, what I like a lot about the cinematography, yeah, it's, it's very expansive. It's beautiful to look at. You sort of go wow a lot watching this movie um, in interior scenes, exterior scenes specifically. But what's really neat about it is, and a lot of people probably don't concern themselves with this is that it's not as if they just stuck a camera outside in Morocco or Spain and just shot anything and it was beautiful. There's still a lot to do with framing, even in those huge expansive shots. And um, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously framing is really important. It's important throughout, but I think you notice it a lot more in interior scenes because you're, you're sort of like, okay, where am I in, this, in the geography? Or when the geography is just flat, 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 then mountains and mountains and mountains and flat, 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 you have to sort of create framing in unique ways. And I think that's really what this movie does. I also like the fact that things will happen. Like I think the first time um, Lawrence sees uh, Brighton, Colonel Brighton, he's, he's like yelling at him from a distance and he's in the frame. And I, even on my big screen, I had to like look for him. Like that's how pulled back and wide this movie is. I had, I had to look for him in the frame and he was there but I couldn't find him right away, just like Lawrence couldn't find him right away. And I think, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, the theater would get better than that, but it doesn't get any better at home viewing than that, I think. Uh, fascinating. The sense of scale in modern movies feels I, I, small because everything is so cluttered up with CGI nowadays. I like it when a film, this film, just pulls out yep. to let you soak in the scenery, and I, I kind of wish we could go back to that as a people. Um, and, of course, aiding the cinematography is, of course, the editing by Ann Coates. Um, this is a really fucking long movie. Uh, no doubt about it. The restored version that was released in 1989 
is three hours and 47 minutes thereabouts, which is a half hour longer than the version that won the Academy Award. But since it's the only one available, it's the one we watched. So um, it's a long movie for sure. But would you cut anything out? I don't I don't think that I would. I, I remember thinking right when I had finished watching it that it definitely feels long, obviously, and it's a, but it's supposed to. But I also felt like it didn't to me it didn't feel like it was three hours and thirty six, seven minutes, whatever. It, I mean it felt like it was upwards of three hours, but that you know, you sort of get to that the last half hour or so and you're like, Oh my god, please get to the end. It it never got like that for me at, at any point, I don't think. Um I feel like it just sort of moved um it sort of moved through its parts really well and I, I think it's meant to feel and I and I think um Somewhere I read this that David Lean always wanted the characters going left to right, as if they were walking a path like where you're taking a journey with them, and it's meant to feel long because it takes place over a long period of time. You can't blow, you, you couldn't blow through this in two hours. I don't think. I think it would be. I mean, you could, and maybe it would still be a solid film, but I feel like you wouldn't have the sort of emotional connection you do with with a longer movie that's well done. Longer movies can suck, like any movie can suck, but a longer movie that's really well done, I feel like, is it's just very rewarding. It's like the it's like the television theory that oh well, everyone gets so into TV. It's well, it's because they have 20 episodes per per season to get it, for the filmmakers and the TV makers to get into this. With a, with a movie, try telling that whole story in 90 minutes. I mean, that's difficult. So to tell a huge story like this, um, in in three hours, three and a half hours, it's still pretty damn impressive. So it could be longer, I think. I mean, to be honest. <laughs> I think it's long enough, but it could be longer, I guess. Roger Ebert once said that no bad movie is too short and no good movie is too long. And with regards to Lawrence of Arabia, I have to say this is one of the tightest films I've ever seen. It's a long movie for sure, but that is only because it is actually three and a half hours. Like That is a long chunk of time for anybody. Um, So it's a physical exhaustion but man i you know i was never once bored by it uh, whenever the film was about to become too samey samey uh it threw something new in there um and as soon as it ended i thought well all right let's let's do it again um do i have the time no but i wanted to um i, I did watch this over right. two days because of i had to timing and kids uh etc uh but i don't feel like i had forgotten anything at all in the meantime mm-hmm. Uh, it all stayed within my mind uh, because it's like a simple story. It doesn't get hung up on so many unimportant details. Um, there's this guy. He goes to establish contact with very Ar- various Arab tribes. Shit happens. And even the political machinations that General Allenby and the other generals are up to doesn't feel boring. It feels uh, integral to the pot, plot. Like there's an even bigger story happening than what is presented. Um, and with that, of course, we do absolutely have to talk about the score by Maurice Jarre. How has the score persisted in pop culture, if it has? I believe, and I don't remember which one it was from, but I think it was used in, um, like a, a form of it was used in one of the um, uh, Mummy films from the late 90s, early 2000s. <laughs> okay. um, there's obviously a um, a huge influence on uh, of of Lawrence of Arabia in that film. There's the sort of um, westerner character um, Brendan Fraser, and the in the easterner character Oded Fair's character, and the very very similar 
um, sort of dynamic that, that Lawrence and uh, that uh, Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif have. Um, but I, I feel like it just, you hear it, and even if you don't know what it is, you sort of have heard it before, which is really interesting, because it's not something they play, it's not like a, one of the songs they played during like fireworks ceremonies or something, <laughs> but for some reason, it just feels like something you're always intimately familiar with in a strange way, even though it's not a really intimate sound, it's a very big song, a very big score. Um I don't know. I think it's just good music, and it just holds up. It gets in your head, and it's just catchy in a way. Yeah, it does. It works outside of the context of the film. A lot of film scores, yeah. they are improved by the quality of filmmaking around it. But this is, you know, since everything's quality, like it's, it is top-notch, very deserving of that substantially original score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and abso- absolutely, absolutely great. Um, these days epic movie i think is often usually closely tied with action-packed b movie uh you know there's like you know the standard action beats marvel movies you can consider epic uh i was shocked for the first the basically the first half of the film uh, how not violent it was right there is uh it spends a lot of time building up the characters and the relationships and it pays off wonderfully there was the uh the, one of the most favorite fam- fam- famous scenes is when lawrence goes back across the nefud desert to rescue a man who had felt who'd fallen behind and it's just some mm-hmm. some random soldier some random dude you're like well like why like fuck it who cares i don't like why why is he going back for for this dude like sure and like he rescues him and he's a hero and it's great and it's a beautiful moment the score is pounding the cinematography is just is just hanging on every single shot of the far distance is waiting for this little figure to appear yeah. out of nowhere uh, and it's and, and it's brilliant but at the same time you go well it's just one random soldier like it, like a, a more modern film would have had um ali or one of the or maybe even one of uh lawrence's new uh like servants fall behind just as a way to be like oh this is a character we care about so we're gonna go back but what that does is establish the relationship between lawrence and this other random character which comes back when this other random character is set to be executed Mm -hmm. and the look on lawrence's face when he realizes it's his friend it's his friend gassim Mm -hmm. uh is just uh it's a great bit of acting by peter o'toole and to his credit uh i will say it's he doesn't like a lot of the times i think the hero in modern films would find a way to not execute the guy but to the film's credit like lawrence kills a lot of people he becomes a madman by the end of it and you know he has that great line where he's like you know no sir i i had a terrible thought and that thought is i enjoyed it yeah yeah and it just and he just keeps going from there he has to he has to kill he, he watches uh, his one of his servants get picked up by quicksand blames himself for that he has to shoot the other one for unless for fear of him getting captured and then he just goes on a rampage and like you have the the scene of him cover his white robes finally dirty after all this time just covered in blood and madness and horror on his face it's just every emotion right on that pretty little face of peter o'toole's <laughs> it's uh it's 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 brilliant and um you couldn't get i don't think you could get that if 
ev- every other scene was some sort of random action beat where the you know our heroic yeah, adventures had, yeah it, it, it would be exhausting for two and a half hours that's like then and that's just a michael we're, it's a michael bay movie where right. things, things got to blow Nothing up every now and then but what i what i like about this is that you feel everything there's they take time to show us how the characters react to their uh to the things they don't feel good about and they they get to they get to they get to feel the things and that's where that's where that's where David Lean is the king of epics is that it's not just about the exciting and the expansive it's a very very intimate portrayal of a man who doesn't know who he is who is built up to be something he is not and then is brushed aside after after all is said and done and it's um i saw i uh, the film ended the film ended and i was like wait wait that's it and then i i was like oh that feels kind of a like a down like a bummer mm-hmm. a downer but then i realized how brilliant it was because he's going home and his job is done and like that's that's it and like of course he feels conflicted about this because he's lawrence of fucking arabia he is yeah. built up in the he's built up in the american newspapers as like the the hero that we need right now and he's and now he doesn't have to be needed anymore right. of course he's gonna like like his entire like he's back to he's just t.e lawrence right. i don't even know what t stands for is it like i don't know ted or thomas edison tom know. yeah t- sure sure just just why not so um we are wildly over. Are there any other things you'd like to bring up about this movie? You, you made a good point. I just wanted to echo your point earlier about the editing, that it's a long movie, but I never felt um, overwhelmed by the storytelling. I always knew where where everyone was. I knew always knew where the characters were going, where they had come from. Um, all the sort of inner workings of the plot. It, there's a lot going on, but I never felt overwhelmed by it. And that's a small miracle um, in many regards. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's something to mention to people who probably who might listen to this or think about this movie and be sort of um, intimidated by it. It is long. You need to sort of commit time to watch it. But it isn't convoluted. It's very well put together. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the better together longer films i think i've ever seen um and i think that that's it's sort of one of its one of its real testaments to filmmaking that you know it's a long movie and everyone sort of goes eh, about it but <laughs> it, it really doesn't feel like um a long film it feels sort of intimate like you were just speaking about so um yeah no, i just wanted to echo that sentiment i think that, that, that was brilliant i think it's brilliant the way they did it so yeah yep. so it's a silly question. This is uh, routinely in the top 10 of the AFI best films of all time. Sight and Sound has it in the top 10. And Sight and Sound like doesn't like anything that, no, you've, that, that you've heard of. Um, so did Lawrence of Arabia deserve Best Picture? Yes, of course. Uh, of course, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that... For me personally, for a movie that is sort of as as large and uh, sort of a, a spectacle like this film is, but to have a, a, a marginalized amount of sort of action and actual sort of spectacle in that regard, 
is something sort of magical unto itself that like the sort of excitement comes from the thrill of watching these filmmakers put the film together like that's the sort of like exciting part for me watching you're like oh my god this is such <laughs> it's just an insane endeavor to put this together um and i think that it filters perfectly into sort of the way i feel about action cinema in general that there's no nothing is exciting unless there's an emotional connection and this movie every time we we have sort of a spectacle or an action type sequence um there's a lot of emotional connections a lot of build up to that so the payoff is super strong and i would say that too to younger viewers or younger listeners um younger viewers of the film who maybe are a little put off by older films and the fact that the some of the action staging looks like it's from 1962 um it doesn't feel like it's from 1962 because it's really damn exciting because you give a shit about all the characters in play in any, yeah. in any given sequence. Um, so for me, that's sort of testament to the movie in, in, in that sense is that it's both like a ridiculous throwback to like movie serials, um, a biopic, and a, you know, a piece of historical fiction, um, an intimate character study, and, and a million other things. And yet it never feels like it um, falls under its own loftiness or it gets weighted down by its own loftiness. It always sort of stays grounded. Um, and that's something that's deserved of accolades, I think. Absolutely. Um, we say epic these days, but I think we've forgotten what that word means. Mm. Uh, I think generally we take it to mean violent, bloody movie about dudes, predominantly <laughs> dudes, that's intercut with pretty scenery like yep. i love the lord of the rings films that's kind of what that what that film is and that's mm-hmm. totally it's totally fine it's it's great but um lawrence of arabia is epic yes it's uh hands down one of the most beautiful movies ever put on film 70 millimeter or otherwise uh but as i said before it's um intimate in a way that i think even some of the independent those smaller indie films can't even touch because it yeah takes the time and uses this these grand backdrops and this great quest that Lawrence is on to really dive into the psychology of the character and it's just a stunning look at uh kind of a madman who mm-hmm. um who I who I said it's a portrait of a man who flew too close to the sun and yeah you know for that I will always love this movie I will defend it always uh widely considered one of the greatest films of all time so yes i love the other nominees to kill a mockingbird is great and so powerful and the music man has is just so much fun and has wonderful music but like what else can you say but lawrence of arabia of the 50 some odd films we have done this is easily in the top three of the movies we have watched for uh for this um for this little podcast of ours so uh if you haven't seen it uh sorry for all of the spoilers uh luckily they they let you know who that lawrence dies within five minutes of the films and the rest of it is just literally the journey of how he gets there but uh uh you know even if you have seen it do yourself a favor and go check this out carve out a bunch of time it can be over two nights or however long it is uh, one of those films that I can definitely say that everyone should see at least once before they uh, before they part this mortal coil. Mm. 
So, um, thank you for listening to this extra long episode of Oscar Watch. Uh, we are coming back next week. And, Matt, what film will it be? Let's roll the dice. Die? Is it one? Okay. <laughs> so, we're going, we're, going, we're going way back. We're going way back. We're going back to... Oh, we're going, we're going back to going my way, actually. The 1944 best picture winner going my way do you know anything about it because i sure don't nope <laughs> all right i love it this is uh well exciting. i'm very excited i'm very excited i love i love it when we get to the movies <laughs> that nobody has heard about we just did lawrence of arabia one of the, the most talked about films of all time and now we're going to one that i think nobody w- if you asked if going my way one best picture people would give you a blank stare and go what movie is that so you have been listening to the Oscar Watch Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing your thoughts, your very strong opinions, and anything else you might like to send us. Find us on social media at oscarwatchpod. And be sure to like, subscribe, and review on iTunes. It really helps people discover this little project of ours. And we appreciate all of the reviews you guys send. And as always, thank you for listening. Matt Marchetti, where can people find you? You guys can find me, uh, as always, on Instagram at uh, movie underscore matinee with two T's. Try to do reviews a day, new stuff, old stuff, weird stuff, normal stuff, <laughs> <laughs> any any stuff, dog stuff, whatever. <laughs> um, I just did the recent Planet of the Apes trilogy uh, I'll have um, my review for Atomic Blonde up tonight, and then it's back to like the movie Teen Witch from 1989, and then I think Waxwork one and two. So <laughs> when I say it's all over the place, I really mean it's all over the place. Wait, Teen Teen Witch? Teen Witch, yeah, made in the wake of Teen Wolf. Wow. If you have not seen Teen Witch, you should see it at least once. It is a kind of a musical, but not at the same time. It is a weird, weird, weird film that only the late 1980s could bring us. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing that, and you should definitely follow along with him. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Tune in next week. Going my way. Until then, we'll see you on the red carpet. Hemingway, Eichmann, stranger in the stranger.